You're listening to Drinking Socially, the official Untapped podcast, your weekly look into what's happening in the Untapped community and the world of beer. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tim. Drinking Socially is released every Wednesday morning and can be found at podcast.untapped.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we get into it, let's get something to drink. I actually haven't taken the top off this one, so it may take me a little bit longer than I expected. Today we are mixing it up a little bit. Uh, We are doing this show, as we did with the last show, uh, remote for scheduling reasons. So instead of doing a shared beer, we're just doing a shared style. Um, And this time we are both, I believe yours is the same, but we are both doing a Lambic. Uh, Mine is categorized as a fruit. I think yours is categorized as traditional, although they Mm -hmm. both kind of have fruit in them. So that's interesting. Yeah. uh, We'll be getting more into Lambics a little bit later. But uh, the whole reason why I wanted to do this was because uh, we just started the month of July. It's July 3rd when we're recording this. And uh, the subreddit and the Discord, the like, I guess, unofficial Discord channel uh, for Untapped is doing something called the Discord Drinking Project. I mentioned it before, but... Uh, for the month of July, they're doing uh, fruited sours. And so I hadn't participated in one before, and I kind of wanted to throw my hat into the ring, if you would. So I put in uh, the four different fruited sour beers that I have in my cellar right now. I'm actually, I'm moving soon, so I'm trying to get rid of these. And this is a really, really good way to <laughs> to get uh, my cellar just kind of cleaned out uh, before I have to move and not have to carry all that liquid and, and risk the potential of it actually uh, breaking in the, in the process. So oh, I don't want to do would, that. That would just be painful. This is, this is a very good way to take care of that problem. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, so let's, let's get into what we actually have today. Tim, what do you have? Um, I picked up a spot and lemon uh, by McKellar. This is actually out of Denmark and an import. Um, it is a lambic fruit. It is a 7.7 ABV and they describe it as basically um, it's a lambic with lemon generously added to the brewing process, and it creates a truly unique, distinct, and very sour beer. Um, I was reading some of the check-ins to this, and it says that it is just a sour bomb, and I'm super excited for that because I love things that are just like super sour on the back of the taste buds. Yeah, I know we talked about uh, Warheads before and like how yep. how close to to a, a Warhead a sour is and, and how much that really, I mean, that's kind of like my meter, right? It's like the left-hand side of that meter is probably... Uh, maybe like lemon heads or, you know, something that's sweet, maybe like Mike and Ike's Mike and Ike's are kind of like on that side where it's, you get a little bit of a tartness to them, especially the, the, uh, yellow ones, but you go to the, the like right-hand side of that and it is the extra strength warheads or like the super (laughs) sour ones. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and like with most Lambics, this one is oak barrel aged and it is, uh, aged in McKellar's barrel house in Belgium and imported to the U S by the Shelton brothers. So I'm okay. going to crack that one open because I'm very excited. It smells like sour. All right. Well, I get this poured up. Um, what do you have? So I've got something called Umeboshi uh, by Beechwood Blendery. Um, it is kind of, I, I, we were talking about offshoots last time and the literal brewery offshoot from the brewery. And it, it, this gets very, very confusing uh, from Placentia. But uh, Beechwood Blendery is sort of a a barrel aging program as a part of the Beechwood Brewing. They're based out of, I believe, uh, Long Beach, California, down here. Yeah, it's it's in Long Beach near the, uh, down in the same area. 
And they've been doing a lot of different uh, beers at the ble- at the Beechwood Blendery. Uh, something about mangoes, I believe. They, there's a bunch of different fruited type beers, um, all all sort of in the family of these uh, really beautiful, beautifully designed bottles. Uh, this is one of the bigger ones. I don't know if you can see in the video, Tim, but this is this is one of those gigantic bottles. Oh yeah, they've been they did mostly. I feel like they do mostly um, 750s down there. I have one of their other sours, like a one of the like you use too many peaches eugene or something like that yeah yeah exactly exactly but this one comes in at seven percent abv supposed to be a lambic goza style uh, inspired ale made with plums and bamboo jade sea salt uh, which i learned is i guess from hawaii which is interesting it's it's got this like green crystalline look to it uh very unique um almost it's probably playing the part i would assume of shiso in in the combination of umeshiso type flavors that you would tend to expect in things like japanese cuisine 2016 release brewed and bottled in long beach california artwork is by thomas campbell i know we've talked about uh, labels in the past but this one this one is, is pretty cool it's got just it just says ume on the front yeah that's uh, which nice. is a that's some good which is like a small little green plum yeah uh, i have some examples actually of what what those look like so i have a bunch of ume stuff around my house so i figured of course you do of course <laughs> I could you do. try i could try the beer um, and then also just sort of be able to compare it to a couple of, I have, uh, pickled ume plums here from, uh, Mitsua. <laughs> oh, you were doing the most. I have, uh, ones that my, my mother-in-law, uh, made a long time ago, uh, wow. with a bunch of ume plums in here. These are our home pickled. Um, and then I've got one that I picked up in Japan. This is like a, a crunchy ume snack. Um, it's got the pit in it still, and I expected them to be kind of like this, where they're they're sort of uh, mm-hmm. pickled, like really, really pickled and kind of shriveling uh, without the pit inside. But these are like crunchy and and kind of um, unbearably tart, and they individually package them like this, which is which is kind of cool. But I've got a bunch of ume stuff here. Um, I'm interested to know <laughs> what flavors uh, are imparted by this and how much of the Goza style is is uh, imparted on this because when you taste these ume things, it's usually so, so, so salty. And I don't know if it should really be considered a lambic. So I'm, I'm curious. I, this is one of those times where I am definitely not happy about not being there. I was looking at as well um, some photos of this on Untapped before I actually opened it up. Um, just to see what it looked like, uh, see what it was like from the uh, from the brewery as compared to what it would be like from the bottle. In a lot of the photos I saw, it ended up being at least the the ones that are on Untapped ended up being sort of this like uh, murky, almost light pink look. Me pouring this, it's like golden. It is deep, deep, deep amber, s- s- somewhat opaque, but but mostly clear. That's about the same as what I'm looking at here with them. Yeah, this McKellar, it's a little, it's a little hazy. The the um, not as opaque, um, but same color tones that I'm picking up on yours. You were smelling it, and you were saying like it, it is, it is pretty lemony. It's lemony, but you, not as it seems like a very subtle. I don't want to say it's definitely not like pine solly or anything like that. Okay, see, that's that's something that I've experienced in the past too. Not with lambics per se, but with oak aged beers that are lemon flavored they can lean on the like oh man this smells like i just washed the floor with it or this especially when they're trying to up the alcohol on them they can come off as really um abrasive uh, on the nose at least this one isn't as abrasive um it's got the citrusy thing going on it's definitely it's got a little bit of a sweet um uh, 
undertone that I kind of, after re- doing some research on lamb, I kind of pick up. But I going in and actually taking a sip, I, I, this is definitely appealing to my thing about wanting a sour bomb. I, <laughs> my whole face tightened up like I just bit into a lemon. Well, see, I'm, I'm waiting. See, on your side, you should just have a whole bunch of lemons just kind of sitting on the table. So you're ready, ready to kind of go in <laughs> just straight into a, a, a quartered lemon. You just bite right into a lemon. No, it's it's all it's all citrus. It's all sour. It's all pucker. I'm not getting any real sweetness. There's no hop character. So I should I should say as well. I cellar this. It, it says to it's recommended uh, cellar temperature forty five to fifty five. I I pretty much cellar this the entire time I've had it at that temperature. And this is one of the beers that I've aged for for a bit. Uh, twenty sixteen release. It's we're here in twenty eighteen. So I don't know if if it has changed much in that time. This is the only one I've had. Um, I get a little bit of the the Goza inspiration uh, with the the sea salt that they've added. It says. A house funk dominate the aromatics, followed by flavors of juicy plum and melon. So I definitely get the plum because it's a uh, plums are in season right now. Uh, actually, you know, regular, regular types of plums. Um, and they they tend to be pretty juicy. Maybe the association between like ume, which is typically really small and green and kind of sour um, with with what you would expect with regular plums. There's a, a definite disconnect, but I I don't get a lot of juiciness. I get oak for sure. I can I can definitely taste the oak. It is really pleasant. I I can't say anything say, bad about this. Would you say it's okay? It's okay. Yeah. It's <clears throat> I don't have a bell on this side. Where's my bell? Thank you. Took care of it for you. But now I've now I've got this like 1.5 liter bottle to go through all alone. <laughs> As much as it sounds, um, as much as my description of this sounds like it's just this horrifically sour, acidic nightmare, it's yeah. it's pleasant, it's pleasing. But again, only if you're going to be in the mood for something like a giant warhead or literally just like biting into a lemon, which right. sounds terrible, but it can be very welcoming. Is it dominating the like funkiness that you would get with the lambic or is it is it more like on the um the effervescent side where you get sort of the like italian uh soda tastes to it or like a like a a sparkling water or whatever it's lemon through and through i think the um i think the uh the kind of the effervescence that you were talking about that's where the kind of the lambicky barrel aged um flavors lie when i take a sip for the most part, though, it's very, very much just citrusy lemon all the way through. I think, you know, you're talking about how sour yours is. I think I wanted mine to be a lot more sour. That's what I run into, I think, with um, a lot of the sour beers that I end up trying is I want them to be like, maybe, well, maybe not this strong. Like what we should be doing is probably mixing these two together yeah. because that sounds like a good combo <laughs> right there. It really does. It really is. I feel like I should be garnishing my glass here with a the pitted uh, umeboshi. Just kind of sitting on the edge, <laughs> right uh, there. Yes, it would. It wouldn't look great, but it, <laughs> it might taste pretty good. So, what? Um, how? How does it compare? Did you just pop one in your mouth? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, just a small little piece. The thing is, with umeboshi, it's so 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 powerful in small bits, and it complements a lot of fishy flavors. So this may have been a good compliment to our uh, umami bomb way back uh, yeah, in uh, yeah. episode three or so five. But I. 
right now it is it's a lot of oak it's a lot of sweetness it's some mild plum flavors and a tiny bit of salt i don't I think what I expected uh, by by the both the branding with just the the huge written ume here on the front um, mm-hmm. and the color that I was seeing on Untapped, I expected a lot more plum and and a lot more sourness and it's not coming through. It's still pleasant, I should say. It, it, it we don't give ratings on this this show ever. If you're ever interested though in what we end up rating these beers, uh, you can follow us on Untapped and and find out there and see. Hopefully. Uh, whether or not I, I enjoy this one all the way through, but yeah, that's that's about it. I, I as you get further through, the rating goes up. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and that can happen too. Um, when when like a stout, uh, a beer, a Russian Imperial Stout opens up over time as we're trying it, or um, sours tend to not be that way for me. It's usually like I love the first couple sips, and then it it's. It either levels off or it gets a little worse as it warms up. I, I'm not usually a fan of of sours after that point, but but we'll see. I'm sad I can't share this one with you. Oh, same on this side. Have any of you had either of these? Let us know what you thought on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by tagging us at Untapped. Since we just released a brand new update of the Untapped app, the current version being 3.3.0. If you haven't updated, go to your app store of choice, either the Google Play Store or the App Store and upgrade today. We're always here to answer your questions and help you with any issues that you might run into. And we're always looking for feedback from our users. So we want to take a moment to let you know how you can get in touch with us and send us your feedback. First, if you're having any issues with the app, of course, you should head over to help.untapped.com and you can submit a new ticket and our support team will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. You can also head over to Twitter and tweet at untapped support or at untapped. And we'll see both of those and be able to get back to you and uh, and try and diagnose whatever issue you might be having in the settings of the app. You can also go to the feedback button that's on your profile tab. If you tap the gear icon and scroll down, there is a feedback button there that'll send direct feedback to our help desk. We'll take a look at your feedback. And if it's a feature idea, we'll take those feature ideas into consideration. You can also follow us to get these types of updates by following us at Untapped on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And of course, you can always email just the old-fashioned way, help at untapped.com. And if you're having no issues, if you, if you love your Untapped experience, we would love a review in the App Store or on Google Play. Uh, we also have links for that in the settings section. So just tap Rate Us in there. And that always, always, always helps us. Want to show off your love of Untapped? Check out our online store and pick up Untapped branded glassware, shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and more. Go to store.untapped.com and enter the coupon code PODCAST at checkout to get 20% off all orders. That's 20% off over at store.untapped.com with the coupon code PODCAST. All right, let's move on to our style of the week segment and take a look at this week's featured beer style. Here's Tim with more about the beer we're trying right now. In the spirit of tying our beer of the week, or in this case, beers of the week, uh, together with our style of the week, we are going to be taking a look at the Lambic. A Lambic is a type of beer brewed in the Payoutlant region of Belgium, southwest of Brussels, and in Brussels itself at the Cantillon Brewery. 
The name Lambic has three potential origins. Um, the first one is a kind of corruption of Lambic, which is Flemish, or Lambec from the French origin, um, which basically refers to the Lambic brewing town located on the Sine River. Um, there's also potential that it comes from Alambic, um, which is an old type of a distilling apparatus, so kind of in that brewing vein. Um, and then there's also Lambre, uh, the Latin word meaning to sip. So those are kind of like the three potential places that that actual name came from, which is really interesting. Being that beers tend to kind of take on the origin, I would probably guess that the uh, first one there is a little more accurate. Um, yeah, well, and, and a lot of these beers that we've talked about before are typically named for the region that they come from. Um, but I love that there is there is some sort of Latin root in in this word, which kind of sounds similar. It's, it's a very, very interesting fact. Um, as we know, Lambics tend to be more on kind of the sour um, kind of wild side. And, you know, at, at one point, all beers were actually sour to some degree due to their open air and wild fermentation process. Prior to the advent of sterile brewing environments and that whole like isolated bacteria strains that are just perfectly perfected and shipped to the brewer, um, breweries would leave their wort open to the air and invite the naturally occurring bacteria in that air to enjoy the sugary feast that is their wort. This is quite a bit of a, a sugary feast for us as well. I, I, more than likely when I enter this into my calorie counter, it's going to be a bad, bad, bad thing. Bad day for your calories, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. For many modern brewers, uh, this wild bacteria that was welcomed at that point is actually the enemy because, uh, you know, you get wild yeast in there. And if you're trying to stick to a very specific kind of sterile tight um, uh, recipe, that's going to mess everything up. But for these traditional brewers, that's what they want. The, the traditional Lambic brewers are welcoming, almost completely just inviting this weird, crazy wild bacteria that's just floating around in the air or in the wood of their breweries to get in there and just make things crazy. The result of their open air fermenting um, is kind of a wild, funky, sour beer that really varies wildly from batch to batch. It's impossible to define the mix of wild yeasts and bacteria that are used um, to ferment lambics because it changes literally from batch to batch. If you think mm. about it, you make a batch, a breeze blows through, you've got one type of bacteria. Another breeze comes through and you got something completely different. I, I sneeze on one. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just, it's surprising how, uh, if you think about it, just how spontaneous any of that can be. There are actually over 80 microorganisms that have been identified in Lambic beer. Um, the most significant being uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, Saccharomyces, help me out here, Kyle. Pastorianus. Ah, uh, there we go. And the Brettanomyces. I'm not really a fan of the Brettanomyces. Um, it, it, it's it can be very very funky if you're not knowing what to expect uh, with it. It can be a little off-putting for some. Um, but it is very distinct, which, which can, you know, can really help if, if you like that, that flavor, like that style, uh, it can point you in the right direction. That's one of those strains, um, that you see actually a lot in sour, like a more modern kind of controlled sour beers, I feel like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and it, I'm, this may be incorrect, but I believe Britannomyces is also used in bottle fermentation and, um, like, you know, actual fermentation later in the bottle. Because you'll include some of the the the, the Britannomyces inside the bottle as it's being packaged, so that it, it does kind of uh, start to change over time. I believe I do have I have one in my my fridge over there. 
the like longer term fermentation going on in there. Yeah, like enjoy after uh, Stone Series. So for a lambic, the grist or the grain bill, um, it contains approximately sixty to seventy percent malted barley and thirty to forty percent unmalted wheat. Um, this gives the lambic a bit of weight to the body, something not always shared by other sour beers. Now, it's also been known since the 11th century that hops added a pleasant bitterness, flavor, and aroma to beer, um, but they also contain a natural preservative quality that not everyone knows about, because obviously we know about the bitterness, the flavor, and the aroma, being the IPA lovers that we are. And then since the Lambic undergoes this natural fermentation process, um, it has to take a little bit longer, um, and for Lambics, it's so long that the risk of spoilage is really high for this kind of beer. Um, thus, the brewers have to use a very large amount of hops to help preserve the beer, hmm. really taking advantage of that um, preservative quality. Interesting. And we've seen hops be used as preservative for, before. That was sort of the advent of the IPA and the pale ale. Yeah, the overhopping a pale ale so that it lasts for that journey um, on the ships. Same idea. Also, in terms of just talking about the uh, the storage of of these beers and and them going bad, one of the differences between these these different strains, I don't know what this one is brewed with in particular, the the one I'm trying right now. Um, but this one says the cellar temperature should be between 45 and 55. The uh, I'm looking here on the enjoy by with Brett, uh, it says do not refrigerate, store between 50 and 70 uh, in a dark oh, wow. place. So you gotta keep that um, keep that yeast active. Right. So in order to to kind of keep that going, keep that rolling uh, in in cellaring, these uh, obviously they're two different types of beers. Uh, this one is a Brett IPA, but it, it follows that, you know, you want to make sure that if if you've got some active yeast in there, that that keeps keeps doing what it's supposed to be doing. And I'm sure the same is true uh, in, in the preservation of the uh, Lambic style. You know, you want you want enough microorganisms in there doing their work to kind of make sure the beer is still good, still good to go. It's not a bunch of dead yeast. Uh, modern brewers actually avoid making extremely hop-forward lambics, and they actually utilize aged dry hops, which they basically have lost most of their bitterness, the aroma and the flavor. The, the things that we actually really want from the hops in our beer, they don't want. They're mostly just looking for that preservative quality and kind of letting the other kind of um, characteristics that we tend to desire um, letting those kind of burn off. Well, and they're probably taking advantage of of uh, what some would call the hop half life. You know, they're they're the alpha acids in the hops are reduced pretty significantly the longer that you age them, and you're not gonna they're not gonna convert the same way that uh, newer hops would, or you know, more fresh hops, and won't impart as much of a flavor. But still, sounds like it. They're uh, they're adding some sort of preservative element to it, which is cool. Uh, the Lambic, once it's done with its initial um, brewing, is actually left to ferment and mature for one to several years. Um, after fermentation and barrel aging, various batches of Lambics are actually compared and blended. Um, and then <laughs> often old and new beers are combined, giving the Lambic its characteristic depth and complexity. The idea being that they would um, you know, make a few different batches, and each batch, again, is never the same. And um, you would then kind of pick and choose what you think the best are to mix together to make something that's actually palatable. Because I believe we talked um, last episode or the episode before about how um, beers that are aged longer, they can, you know, get a little crazier, higher alcohol, the sourness mm -hmm. can get mm -hmm. 
in there. And then you kind of want to blend that with something that's a little fresher to mellow it out. So that that's kind of where this whole idea comes from. Yeah, the beer that we tried in episode, I believe, 17 was one that was, in fact, uh, blended between, I think it was 18 months and 12 months and kind of in between there. That was the Duchesse de Bourgogne. They're not looking to knock you over, to blow your socks off with uh, the funkiness or the, you know, really, really intense uh, sourness or sweetness or, you know, one way or the other. They're looking to kind of give you depth and complexity, and they do that by the creating the blend of all those different versions of it. It still makes it unique, I guess, to, to their, um, their brewing and their brewing process. It's just the, you know, at, at, at what percentage do you make the blend? Do you do the combination so that you kind of get the, the most depth of flavor? Yeah. I can only imagine the trial and error going on in there. Right, right. A couple, like just, two drops just of one this more. one and three drops yeah. of this one. I don't want to waste it all. I just <laughs> want to know what it tastes like. This is true. Um, there are actually a number of different um, sub-variants within the Lambic family. Um, the first one is the Gyoz, which is a Lambic made by blending old new batches. Um, there's the Creek, uh, which is literally means cherry. Um, it's a Lambic that's kind of fermented with sour cherries. Uh, there's a Frambois, which is like a Creek, but it is um, it is fermented with raspberries. Um, there's the peche, which is with peach, um, the cassis, which is black currant, and the pome, which is apple. And I'm guessing that the last two there, I may have butchered the pronunciation, but we're just going to go with it. So really, all the variants just happen to do with the um, different kinds of fruit that they're actually um, fermented with, interestingly enough. Right. Yeah, I've got a uh, I've got a peach in my fridge right now, which I'm really interested in trying. It's from a place in Chicago, Illinois, and I cannot remember the name off the top of my head. But it's in my it's in my list somewhere. All right, I'm gonna go to my I'm gonna go to my beer history. I'm gonna have to actually go into the app and do the multi select uh, version of this, like so I can get all of the lambics that are in there. Uh, we had the the duck duck goose from uh, Lost Abbey um, a while back. That was fantastic. So, yeah, so we've shared the Duck Duck Goose before, 2016, uh, Lambic style, uh, 7%. I rated it a 5. I loved that beer. It was so, so, so good. Um, I've also had one from McKellar, uh, the Torezu Spontan. That was actually recently as well. I had that while in, uh, while in Tokyo, at McKellar Tokyo. Uh, a little bit of strawberry bitterness, mild pucker. I said, really digging this one, 4.5. And it's it's got the same color. I don't know if you can see this in the uh, in the video, but it's about, nice. it's about the same color. Yep, I see that. This like goldy amber thing. Yeah, like a lot deeper than you would expect from a sour beer. It's a heck of a beer. I, I love the style. I would, I, obviously I need to try more of it. I've only had two. Well, being the whole idea of exploring, which we talked about last time, of exploring more Belgian beers, I think, uh, I think this is just another one in the list. Yeah. Let's look at some of the interesting beer articles that we found this week. All right. This week, uh, the first article we have up for you is a continuation in our World Cup-related news for you. Uh, This article is coming to us from Thrillist.com, and it is entitled, This man who rounded up beer from every World Cup country is the real winner. Uh, This is coming from (laughs) Will Fulton over at Thrillist. Very, very, very cool. You know, Tim, we've tried to pivot this podcast to a, like, World Cup uh, results podcast. We've tried to talk about the the scores of the game, but we're always a week behind. It seems to be just, you know, we're not, not very timely with our news. 
No, being that we're recording a week before release, yeah, we have a little <laughs> difficulty there. So the scores don't necessarily matter. We're just looking Let's for stick related with the here. beer, I guess, right? Y- yeah, exactly. So Germany is out in the first round. People hate Messi, and the South Koreans are heroes. America never even made it to begin with. Um, but this guy, his name is Gus, and he decided to purchase beer from all 32 participating countries in the 2018 World Cup. Uh, when a country is eliminated, he drinks the native uh, corresponding beer in solidarity. Uh, he's quoted here saying, my friends and family think it's a little bit foolish. They think it's a waste of money. But it's the World Cup. It's beer. You've got to get excited. Gus is a UK native and found out that snagging 32 beers and sucking them down is not as easy as it seems. He actually spent months leading up to this year's World Cup um, anxiously following the countries that qualified. And then when he realized that he needed to find beers from Panama, Costa Rica, and and most difficultly, Saudi Arabia, he was a bit worried that he would be able to complete his goal here. Um, luckily for him, he had a friend who was backpacking through South America, and he helped him snag a bottle of Panama Lager from Panama and a bottle of Imperial from Costa Rica. He also had another friend traveling through North Africa. Wow. That is that is really that is really really going the extra mile. He actually he also had another friend traveling through North Africa who was able to pick up a bottle of uh, Sakara Gold, which is actually from Egypt. Wow. Yeah, a lot of work I, went into this. Yeah, it sounds like it. You know, our the the, the find it feature in the app can only be so useful uh, if you've got <laughs> places around you. Find it, uh, South America. If, if you have. Yeah, seriously, if you've got friends going to these different places, too, I mean, you're getting also sort of like an authentic experience of the the folks who are from there um, and, and are able to drink the beers that are from there. It's not just, you know, oh, I'm only this is only the stuff that gets imported to uh, to my country where I am. Yeah, uh, it went on to say that Saudi Arabia proved to actually be the most difficult challenge because inside the country, it's illegal to drink, create or even import alcohol. Um, he actually managed to secure a Saudi brew. Um, even though it was non-alcoholic, it still counted. Um, I have a quote here from a tweet that he put out. Um, he basically, a tweet from Gus here says, uh, put out a help me get Saudi beer tweet, got retweeted by a guy with 50,000 followers, and then somebody in Libya saw it and said that he gets Saudi beer all the time and that he could DHL some bottles over. Like the hero he is, he only went and bloody did it. My hero. What an incredible story. I, I love that. Not only, I mean, yes, obviously this is the untapped podcast. We're going to talk about the fact that Gus is now qualified to basically have the best positioning uh, for our World Cup badge. Um, but I seriously love that. This is one of those like the Internet came together and this is, a, you know, a nice story and a good thing to uh, to see happen. Um, and I like the com- the camaraderie, you know, of trying the beer of the country who lost and just sort of like, ah, it's in solidarity. It's it's just a great story. It's the sportsmanship you really want to be happening out there. Exactly. Exactly. And you're not drinking it out of spite. You're drinking it because, you know, it's like, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel bad for the for the country who lost. And it's the, the game of football is so, so, so passionate. And I feel like that passion can carry over also probably to the the beers that they're drinking and, and um, just sort of the vibe, the vibe, the whole vibe of that country, how they're feeling at that time. Oh, for sure. For sure. You can find a full list of Gus's World Cup beers on the Thrillist article, which we will actually link in our show notes. So you should head over there and check it out in case you were curious what um, beers from the other countries were. 
All right. Our next article, which is very appropriate to our beer choice, comes from GQ.com. Uh, this is by Marion Bull, and it is Why You Need Fruity Beers in Your Cooler This Summer. Meet the overlooked star of the summer beer lineup. Refreshing, tasty, and not too strong. Uh, wheat beer drinkers have reached peak summer, the days when our excessively sweaty bodies can only be satisfied by an icy cold can of whatever. Uh, these are the days of Bud Lights on the boat, cheap pilsners by the pool, and bottles of high life clinked around the backyard while weenies sizzle on the grills. We were talking about uh, uh, Zima and how that was like barbecue beverage number one. If you're looking for the sweeter side, it is most definitely that like barbecue refreshing cheap alternative for sure. Um, in the season of refreshment, as they refer to it, we often pass over more flavorful or aggressive beers looking at you IPAs, for lighter brews that feel like a cold shower for our insides. The author goes on to say, but recently I found an alternative source of lightly carbonated, lightly alcoholic refreshments that has one up on cheap light beer and that it legitimately tastes delicious. Meat light and fruity beer, low ABV, no crazy hop situation with enough fruity flavor to make you feel like you're doing something good for yourself or at least for your taste buds. I mean, does it, uh, that's got to count. You're, if you're having a fruity beer, does that count as like your fruit consumption for the day? Uh, unless it's like naked juice, uh, 2.0 with, you know, you like left the naked juice out way too long and it started to ferment inside the bottle. Maybe <laughs> there's probably some good stuff going on there, but I, I don't think it's going to be quote unquote great for you. I guess at least the idea of having something fruity, uh, may, may mentally establish that for Ment- you. mentally, right? I think it's the low <laughs> ABV. You want that, the, you want the ABV to be low. You want, um, you want the flavors, like they said, to be kind of refreshing. I know there are some beers when I think of fruit beer, especially, um, I'm thinking like, I loved the evil twin, uh, lemonade series, the ones that are like, yes, they've got the lemon flavor, but they're so light. Um, they do kind of come in a little higher at around like seven, like five to seven ABV, depending on on the type. Um, but I love, love, love that series. Uh, most lemon stuff tends to, to be pretty good with me as well. Um, I had one in uh, Japan. Uh, Sapporo made a Ruby Belge. Which oh, really? kind of had like this this uh, ruby red grapefruit flavor to it. It was a it labeled a fruit beer on here, but um, came in at four percent ABV. So canned, like perfect beverage for my ninety five uh, degree or ninety five percent humidity. Oh, sweating um, on the island. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, that does sound perfect for that situation. Uh, the best example the author points out here that they found um, is coming from. What I happen to be drinking here, McKellar, um, which is a brewery mm. that you might recognize from its signature label design or its spat of high-profile collaborations, which included Rick Astley, the metal band Mastodon, and 100 Fancy Restaurants. Now, I know Mastodon. You, you obviously have to know Rick Astley. The internet, is going, the internet is going to flame you right now. I don't know. Let me, can, can I send you a link and, and you can tell me whether or not it is, uh, it is what I'm thinking of? No, you're not going to roll me. <laughs> Uh, their line of fruit-infused Berliner Weiss beers offers up uh, upwards of 10 flavors from peach to cherry to gooseberry. We actually had the gooseberry. Mm-hmm. Um, remember that? That was uh, the gooseberry sour. That was really good. 
And yeah. they're all in tall boys, and they're all clocking in at about 3% ABV, meaning that you can throw back a few before 5 p.m. without ruining your night, which is very true. That's one of the um, pleasing things about Berliner Weiss or um, uh, the Goza. Um, they're flavorful, they're refreshing, and they are not going to leave you passed out on the couch in the early afternoon. Yeah, well, and they're also packaged usually in that 16-ounce can. Uh, so you're you're able to to have, you know, one or two or, you know, enjoy yourself with them. The article goes on to say, These days, brewers are doing right by fruit, using it in subtle and natural ways that will have you thinking fruit was always meant to be in beer. You just hadn't realized it yet. A can of McKellar's Raspberry Berliner Weiss uh, is zesty and tart and puckery and able to wake you up from the most serious post-beach exhaustion. And it's the perfect accessory for summer holidays. Easy and fun and, as they describe here, gluggable. And interestingly enough, uh, to briefly distract you from whatever you need to be distracted from. Gluggable. I- <laughs> that's, that's a new... We, can we put that in the tags? I need, I need a shirt that just says gluggable. That's going to be the flavor profile tag that I'm going to use all the time now. I know this article focused very specifically on McKellar, um, but outside of McKellar, there are many other breweries out there that are doing these really nice, um, really light, refreshing um, kind of goes in Berliner Weiss. I feel like most breweries, uh, they are doing a Berliner Weiss at the very least. I, almost everyone that I've gone to has their own variation of it. Yeah, it can. It, I mean, typically that'll be the lighter side uh, as well on the like the lower ABV. You can also kind of lean a little bit on the session IPA, like a fruited session IPA um, or just a session ale. It may be labeled as a session ale or a wheat beer. It can it can vary sometimes depending on uh, what type of beer it is. But usually they are really low bitterness as well. So you're not getting a lot of the like unquenchable, ungluckable flavors in there. Uh Two, two I want to mention in particular. Uh, Mango Cart by Golden Road Brewing is a fantastic beer. Comes in a 24-pack uh, in Orange County. It is a a really, really good beer, um, especially for micheladas. If you're into, like, the summer flavors and and micheladas and mixed, you know, beer beverages, that is one that is very, very, very good. Um, and also, um, I'm, again, I'm going to mention one from Japan. Yoho Brewing Company created a Yuzu Session Ale. Very good as well. So if you haven't yet tried any of these sort of um, fruited sours like the Berliner Weiss or the Goza, um, I would definitely recommend you give that a shot uh, as we head here into summer. It will definitely be uh, worth uh, checking out. Sorry, I'm adding gluggable. <laughs> Uh, our next article comes from foodandwine.com. This one actually was sent over by you, Mr. Kyle. Uh, this is the U.S. has a new favorite hop variety. This is by Mike Pomeranz. Yeah, so Cascade hops. You know, good old, good old like Northwest Cascade hops. Uh, they've been dethroned. Americans' appreciation of individual hop varieties is a relatively new phenomenon. I know that we've talked a bit about uh, single hopped beers and uh, like the Bachelor series over at Society Brewing in San Diego. Um, Last week's Bravo was uh, single hopped with Nelson. Exactly, exactly. Even as super hoppy IPAs started becoming more popular back in the early 2000s, breweries typically didn't list what hops went into those beers. And most people, they probably didn't care. They didn't know their Amarillo from their Tetnang. Now, see, I don't, I don't know what that is either, so I, I feel a little bit bad. Yeah, no, I, I haven't heard of that one, but it was, it was interestingly enough listed in this article. 
So you've got you. I mean, you've got like we said, Nelson Northern Brewer. Uh, Tetning uh, is a town in the Bodenese district of Southern Germany. Oh, okay. All right. So a German hop variety. See that? That's what. I, no idea. See, maybe we aren't even there yet. Foodandwine.com. But now it's not uncommon to see hop varieties printed out on packaging. You'll see stuff like Mosaic IPA, Forever Simcoe. Even huge, huge, huge breweries are putting that this beer is either made with a blend of hops and they'll name the hops or they'll say, you know, this is a proprietary hop blend, stuff like that. They're they're tr- they're creating these different unique flavors with the hop names now printed on the labels. But the United States now has a new top hop, Citra. Did you see that one coming, Citra? I uh, Honestly, I did not. But part of what this article talks about does um, lean me, you'll get into it, but it does lean me to understand it a bit more. So the article goes on to say, Cascade is often cited as America's signature hop. Of course, it, it was, it's been dethroned by Citra. Uh, the variety was bred at Oregon State University and since its first release in the 1970s has gone on to become the go-to hop used as many of craft brewing's seminal beers, including Sierra Nevada Pale Ales. It's a very distinct flavor. When you have Cascade, you kind of know it. And it is it does tend to be sometimes balanced out by other hops without you even knowing it. But it, it is quintessentially West Coast uh, IPA pale ale, that type of flavor. According to the recently released USDA mid-year acreage report, it's set to change in 2018. This year, more citra hops have been strung for harvest than Cascade, edging bum, out bum, bum. Yeah, edging <laughs> out that classic hop by over 600 acres, which when you think about it, not that much, but it, <laughs> it it's is not that much, but hey, you take what you can get, right? Yeah. Just, I find it super interesting that they're measuring the popularity based off of um, how many acreage. acres are being planted. That's really right. cool. Right. Well, and uh, I think the thing with citra hops is as well, um, you may end up seeing more dry hopping done with citra. So the demand for dry hopping tends to be higher um, or the demand for citra tends to be higher and you need to plant more of those to account for the actual dry hopping of, of these beers. You're not just creating pellets or you're not just kind of squishing it down into, um, you know, stuff that can be shoved into a bag and sent off to uh, brewing facilities. Citra actually first came into the scene back in 2007, a relative newcomer, I would guess. And its core has some similarities to Cascade. The hop supplier YCH Hops lists grapefruit in both varieties aroma description. So you've got kind of the Citra it does. It sounds more citrusy, right? It, it, it has <laughs> phonetically a lot in common with that. So you think more uh, more like fruity notes. Um, they also suggest aromas of melon, lime, gooseberry, passion fruit and lychee M- flavors more in line with America's recent juicy IPA trend. So. And it all makes sense suddenly. Well, and they did mention in the article as well, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, right? Sierra Nevada being also one of the companies that is widely distributing in 12-ounce cans their new Hazy IPA, which I would guess in some form or another has a lot to do with the types of hops that are going in there. Um, They're trying to lean more on the juicy portion of the, the hop spectrum, to have it stand out next to their Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or their tropical IPAs or their, you know, whatever else. They're trying to uh, differentiate that. So big breweries like that are probably also 
contributing to to this type of thing here on the west coast yeah with the need being much higher um with that whole northeast juicy hazy trend making its way around so we'll see we'll see what happens citra top of the spot now I don't know what will be next. I would say Mosaic is probably coming up somewhere in in third. Maybe Galaxy is someone somewhere up there as well. Those are sort of like the big four that that we see a lot here in California. According to craftbeer.com, last year was actually Cascade, Centennial, Chinook, Simcoe, Chinook. and Citra in five. Mosaic came in at um, seventh place. Wow. Even like with like Carl Strauss and... You know, big big brewers like that creating single hopped beers for for that stuff. Uh, interesting, interesting statistics. I, I'm interested to see what happens next year. I think uh, Food and Wine made this sound like it was uh, <laughs> very very like way overtaken by Citra. Like it was a knockout instead of a technical win. Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Citra got uh, one less yellow card than. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. Oh, boy. Speaking of hops and bitterness, our next article coming from HuffingtonPost.com is, Hate IPAs? It's because your genetics programmed you to dislike bitter beers. This is from Courtney Iceman. I know you're going to get into it, uh, but when I think of the words bitter beer, I don't know if you go back to those old commercials from the 90s with the... Oh, bitter beer face. uh, Yes, bitter beer face. And that is probably what is typically associated. Even if you didn't grow up in that time, it's like, ah, uh, craft beer. Bleh. Oh, bitter beer face! Don't let bitter beer make a bad first impression. Drink Keystone, America's least bitter beer, so there's never a bad taste, never a bitter face. Take this. It's always brought me luck. Stop making faces. Drink Keystone. A combination of human instincts, DNA, and learned behavior determines whether you love or loathe hoppy brews. Even casual beer drinkers have likely noticed the meteoric rise of India pale ales over the past decade, but the spotlight-stealing brew can be polarizing. Uh, Maybe you love IPAs, maybe you hate them. Either way, your strong feelings about this beer style have origins beyond your control. Um, A major characteristic of IPAs is bitterness, as we all know. Um, and how humans react to bitterness is rooted in instinct and genetics. Thanks to evolution, we're born with an instinctive blech reaction to anything that tastes bitter. <laughs> Our early ancestors were hunter-gatherers, and their primal reaction to bitterness helped them avoid poisonous plants. Um, I, the same thing goes for um, in the uh, animal kingdom. There are insects as well that will... S- taste bitter and secrete bitterness and thus ward off their predators. So same, Mm -hmm. same idea. It's not just us humans here. Cilantro, just trying to keep as many people away from tasty tacos as we can. There were, this article did, it did bring up um, the genetic um, disliking of cilantro too. I left that part out, but that is a very good point. That also kind of falls into the same category. I think that's one of the, the more well-known ones. It's like, uh, if you don't like or if you are predisposed genetically to not like cilantro, you'll taste it as though it's sort of like this soapy uh, taste. But if you aren't, you love cilantro. And it's so hard from the other side, being on, on the side of, on, of genetics that you taste it and it's a lovely flavor and such a wonderful addition to a taco. You just can't understand. You can't perceive why someone would taste it differently. But it's it's physical, you know, it's it's physiological. Yeah, that's, that's true. And 
John Hayes, the director of the Sensory Evaluation Center at Penn State, explains, I'm not a hunter-gatherer, so I don't need a taste receptor on my tongue to tell me to eat this plant but not that plant, but these receptors do drive food choices. While we no longer depend on it for survival, our perception of bitter equals bad has kind of stuck around with us. Uh, Dr. Nicole Garneau, uh, who serves as a health science curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and the director of the Genetics of Taste Lab, explains that humans have 25,000 genes that determine how our bodies function. Of these 25,000, two genes affect how we perceive sweetness, two affect Kyle's favorite sense, umami, mm. and a comparatively whopping 40 actually affect bitterness. That's 25 that are confirmed, and there are 15 hypothesized. So that's... that's And it's it's not like folks can dig into your DNA and switch these on and off. <laughs> More than likely, it's just that you know, things are this way. The genes make a protein that sits on your taste buds on your tongue, acting as a receptor, she says. Um, mo molecules from food sit atop these receptors and send signals to your brain, and the brain can say, that's bitter. Uh, some of us have differences in these genes, and our genes are made of codons themselves, made of nucleotides. And if these nucleotides are arranged in a different order for a particular codon... It changes how the gene behaves. Be still my heart. Tim is speaking my language. You're, you're loving this right now. I know. <laughs> you should probably have done this article because I'm going to butcher yeah. some of this stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> a, a, a different order for a tasting receptor gene changes the receptor shape so the food molecules don't bind and the signal can't travel to the brain. So no bitterness is detected. Oddly enough, 25% of the population can't detect bitterness. It's like that evil, uh, uh, the, the baddie. It's like the baddie in uh, the 007 movie that couldn't feel pain. You remember that guy? Oh, yeah. I don't remember what his name was, but that was the one with the submarine and the, yeah, mm -hmm, that movie. Despite these genetic factors and our evolutionary inclination to dislike bitterness, many of us have come to rely on our daily dose of bitter coffee or our salads full of bitter kale. Um, the role of learning is hugely important with food choices, Hayes says. It's so multifactorial uh, from culture to cost to availability to parental modeling to positive social valuation uh, to flavor consequence. There's just so many things that lead to all of this. It's just this is when I read into this, I was just thinking, wow, I thought you just tasted things. No, it's way, way more than that. Uh, both Hayes and uh, Gernou uh, point out the importance of flavor consequence and conditioned taste aversion, as they refer to it. Um, we develop an aversion for food if we have a bad experience with it, such as becoming ill, uh, then we won't want to ever eat it again, which I think we've all been there. Yeah. Do you have anything that's like that for you? Uh, Jägermeister. Uh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I feel like for any college kid, but that's... For me, that's I have negative learned yeah, behavior for, for that one. Yeah, that's for a completely different reason. Um, okay, you still did get sick. That's fine. Like, I think Fireball does that to people as well. You know, it's like <laughs> that, that type of thing. Um, for me, it is, I, this is an awful story. So, a trigger warning for people who get sick uh, easily. It is uh, chicken Caesar wraps for me because uh, in high school, chicken Caesar wraps were served at lunch. But the day that I decided to eat one of them from the lunch counter was the day that we also dissected rats uh, in formaldehyde 
and the formaldehyde was still the smell was still on my hands oh, and so the the taste of a chicken caesar wrap and formaldehyde is forever linked in my brain and i just ca- i cannot with caesar salads caesar anything ever 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 it's so 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 bad that is a terrible story and i did not want to hear that <laughs> i'm sorry and I can understand i can understand why you would never want to eat. i'm gonna i will never suggest chicken caesar wrap for lunch ever okay please thank you a uh, flavor consequence on the other hand can be positive um hayes notes that hardly anyone really likes bitter beer the first time they try it however they drink it again because of social pressure or other motivations um, other than taste and then at some point they get a positive ingestion consequence, uh, like having a good time with friends or learn to pair that positive reward with the taste. Um, the article does go on to discuss that if you have written off IPAs because of bitterness, you might want to give Northeast IPAs a shot because of their juiciness and the fact that they have kind of more of a citrus flavor and less of that bitter finish. Case in point, uh, this weekend, uh, we had a party with a bunch of craft beers. The hazy IPAs were the first to go. Folks loved them so, so, so much. Even even folks who did not like craft beer or IPAs or hops or anything, they went instantly. Now, is that because of the fact that they weren't hoppy because they were citrusy or because that's like the thing right now? It may have been because it's the thing right now. A A little bit of A, yeah, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. (laughs) But I mean, I feel like I've read that again and again, that if you're someone who just hates bitterness and shuns all IPAs, that you should go that route because, you know, you're still in the style family, but you're not going to get that same sort of craziness and maybe it works your way up. I think the same can be said, too, for sours. Uh, Lambics are a great way to get into sours because they do not have that super, super pucker other than maybe the one that Tim had today. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But this one would definitely not qualify for what you're describing. This is but in general, you know, you'll you'll find a nice fruity kind of sparkly Lambic uh, that is very, very sweet that can kind of ease you into the sour beers. All right. Show notes are available at podcast.untapped.com. And if you have any questions or you've got feedback for us, again, roll back the tape. Go back to the segment where we talked about all the different ways to send us your feedback and your questions for the app. But if it has to do with the podcast, if you have (laughs) issues with something that Tim or I said, or you just want to get at us, do us a favor. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's at Untapped Everywhere. And again, similar to the app, if you could take a second and head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, Obviously, the higher our reviews and rankings, the higher we will be on the charts and the more people will find our show and the more we will be able to share that. Um, Obviously, we would love to know what you think. And if you could take a moment to do that, we would greatly appreciate it. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers.